Welcome to Mad Men Deconstructed. This is Season 2, Episode 5, The New Girl. There are certain patterns you notice when you look at a seven-season television series. These patterns aren't evident from the onset, but the more you watch, the more similarities you discern between Mad Men's early seasons. Each season begins with episodes emphasizing exposition. The initial episodes often introduce new characters and new dilemmas, but lack emotional punch. But episode 5 typically carries heavier narrative consequences. You'll remember episode 1.5, 5G, for its introduction of Adam Whitman. 5G was the moment that told me, this is more than just some show about the 60s. It was the moment that Don Draper became more than some slick businessman. With 5G, Mad Men finally gave Don a compelling history. It took a seemingly simple character and made him interesting by answering an essential question. Why? Why is he this way? Good character development rests on answering these types of questions. I think good storytelling starts with a desire to express some truth about the world. Characters develop as a voice for that truth, and narrative develops when we ask ourselves questions like, would she really say that? Would he really make that decision? Story develops as a way to explain people. When we're told a story, we want to connect with its characters, to ground their choices in a set of rules that make sense to us. Writers, then, capture our attention when a story's characters have real motivations, and when their actions have real consequences. Episode 2.5, The New Girl centers around actions and consequences. It features several debut contributions. Peyton List enters the cast as Don's new secretary. Longtime writer's assistant Robin Faith is credited with writing the episode, and script supervisor Jen Getzinger gets her first opportunity as a director. The New Girl is another episode focused on Peggy Olsen, but it lacks Three Sundays' optimism. Instead, it shares the darker emotional tone that marked 5G, and like 5G, it revisits the past to reveal powerful, painful memories. The New Girl begins at the office of fertility doctor Eric Stone. Dr. Stone is played by actor John Getz, a veteran stage actor with roles in The Fly, Zodiac, and The Social Network. Trudy responds anxiously to the doctor's initial questions. She's in focus throughout this scene, the camera looking over her shoulder. A nice focus-racking shot of Pete and Trudy covers the dialogue, the emphasis shifting between them. But with how it's shot, the writing, and Allison Bree's nervous energy, the fertility consultation weighs more heavily for Trudy. Pete, meanwhile, seems distracted. Dr. Stone later questions him alone, reading from an old fertility pamphlet. Have you ever fathered a child? Pete shakes his head. He takes Dr. Stone's continued questioning as an affront to his masculinity. We've talked about how Pete often feels emasculated and outwardly expresses his manhood, and Dr. Stone's interrogation seems very confrontational to Pete. Note how Mad Men emphasizes specific moments in the conversation through cut-ins to close-up shots, when Dr. Stone asks questions like, do you want to have a child? And, do you worry about the world? Pete reveals his father's passing and his complete dissatisfaction with work. It's interesting how openly he discusses his feelings with a stranger, but he seems happier after finally voicing his frustrations. Remember that while we live in a time of relative peace, many of Mad Men's characters have witnessed the horror of both world wars within their lifetimes. The destructive power of the atomic bomb is new in their minds. Nuclear proliferation was ramping up at this time. 
In fact, France had become the world's fourth nuclear power in February 1960. China would test its own uranium-235 bomb just years later, in October 1964. And as national pride continued to drive Cold War tensions, fear loomed over everyday life. It's perhaps impossible for us to relate to a world gripped with existential tension, but we should realize that Pete's anxiety is rooted in a very real uncertainty about the world's future. Don and Freddie enter the office that morning and find the ladies gathered together in celebration. It's either a visit from the stork or from De Beers, Freddie speculates. Joan walks out in a bright pink dress and flashes an engagement ring. She later sits at her desk, centered in the frame, surrounded by the other secretaries. The shot construction casts Joan as the literal center of attention, angled a bit so you can see Don through his open office door. Joan takes a call from Bobby Barrett, and Don yells at her to get to work. Miss Holloway, those aren't wedding bells. She walks into his office, then back out, the focus following her from foreground to background. It's a really cool shot that captures Joan, at last, in a moment of happiness. Bobby celebrates at the bar at Sardi's, a restaurant in Manhattan's theater district, between Broadway and 8th Avenue. Sardi's opened in 1927 and became a popular hangout for Broadway crews. It was over lunch at Sardi's that Brock Pemberton first conceived the Tony Award, given for theatrical brilliance to commemorate his late partner, Antoinette Perry. Vincent Sardi Sr. received one of the first Memorial Tony Awards in 1947 for providing a transient home for theater folk. Sardi's restaurant was also known for its caricatures, illustrated by Alex Gard, then John Mackey and Donald Bevan, then Richard Baratz. These covered celebrities from across New York City's theater scene. The drawings became the subject of a minor controversy in 1986, when actor James Cagney's caricature was stolen on the day of his death. In 1979, Vincent Sardi Jr. donated a collection of 227 drawings to the New York City Public Library for the Performing Arts. You'll likely recognize this set's rich, old-fashioned look. The scene was filmed at Musso and Frank's in Hollywood, which first appeared in episode 1.9, Red in the Face. Bobby sits at the bar in a shimmering gold dress with silver jewelry. Madman repeatedly uses glamorous costumes like this to highlight Bobby's obsession with money. The scene unfolds in several parallel cuts between Don's office and the bar, creating a notable contrast between the warmth of Sardi's and the harsh, almost sterile daylight that floods into Don's office. I find the lighting conveys temptation, a choice presented to Don, between good and evil. We did it, Bobby announces. We sold Grin and Barrett. She invites Don to celebrate with her. Bobby sips her drink alone at a booth in Sardi's. A caricature of Jimmy Barrett is visible on the wall over her shoulder. Don arrives dressed in a light gray suit with a silver tie. Note the costuming here. These two are literally silver and gold. Madman's noting an obvious similarity between them. Don notices Rachel Mencken enter the restaurant with her husband, Tilden Katz. This is a bit of an inside joke. You may remember that Rachel previously fought the notion that she had to marry a Jewish man. Don and Rachel's interaction is marked by heavy awkwardness, which Don deflects by talking about work. He's all business, isn't he? Rachel notes to Bobby. Tilden mentions they have tickets for A Funny Thing Happened, a Broadway musical that opened on May 8, 1962. A Funny Thing Happened is a farce that includes common madman elements like temptation, adultery, and even mistaken identity. Rachel's appearance visibly darkens Don's mood. Bobby tries to cheer him up and reveal some of her personal philosophy. This is America. Pick a job and then become the person that does it. Madman's comparison of these characters is compelling. They both share seemingly endless greed, but while Don seems overwhelmingly dissatisfied, Bobby remains completely self-assured. Don, in fact, 
seems to know more about what Bobby wants than what he wants for himself. What I've always found interesting is that Don recognizes the chaos that Bobby brings into his life. He knows she's wrong for him, but he can't resist the thrill. Late that night, Don and Bobby ride in the car, drinking from a half-empty bottle of whiskey. They continue their previous examination of the question, what do you like? Bobby mentions bridges and the feeling of leaving something behind. They talk about movies, and Don brings up La Note, a 1961 film about a married couple falling out of love. You seen the foreign ones? Oh, so sexy. La Note. Yes. Why is it so hard to just enjoy things? God, I feel so good. Much of the scene unfolds in profile until Bobby moves toward Don, and we get a head-on shot looking into the car. She bites his ear as he stares at the road ahead. Don slowly passes out. The harsh headlights of an oncoming vehicle jolt him into consciousness. He grips the wheel and swerves out of the way and into a ditch. The camera pans around the car's underside to find Don and Bobby lying inside, mangled by the accident. Don later sits in the custody of a local police station. The officer informs him his blood alcohol was above the legal limit of 0.15%. Wow. I looked this up, and 0.15% was pretty standard for early DUI laws. The officer tells Don to post $150 in bail. Don offers to send someone with $500 the next day, but the officer rebukes the bribe. These amounts are currently worth about $1,300 and $4,500, respectively. Officer Han hands Don the phone and tells him to call someone. We cut to a low shot of the floor at the entryway of the station. We see a woman enter, the camera focused on her feet. The camera pans up to reveal Peggy Olson. This misdirection was intentional, but on later watches, I realize that the shot of Peggy's ankles is a callback to Mad Men's pilot when Joan tells Peggy, you've got darling little ankles, I'd learn how to make them sing. Peggy looks at Don, a mess, as the shot widens and Bobby stumbles out. Peggy drives them home in a car she's borrowed from her brother-in-law, Gary Raspola introduced in our last episode, Three Sundays. Don is focused on controlling the narrative, worried he'll be caught in an affair. He suggests Bobby stay at Peggy's apartment while her bruises heal. Peggy seems overly helpful and worries about Bobby's condition. No one can know about this, Don says. Peggy insists that she'll forget everything. I don't want you treating me differently, she adds. The accident is the driving force in the new girl's story. It reveals something a bit toxic about Don and Peggy's relationship, which will be examined throughout the episode. Don can't call his wife to bail him out. He's perhaps embarrassed to call Roger. Instead, he leans on Peggy. Don seems to hold power over Peggy, and in The New Girl, he uses her as his get-out-of-jail-free card. Remember that Peggy isn't the only person who knows some of Don's secrets, but her voice is still quiet, unassured, and Don perhaps views her as the one person who can't judge him. Peggy, meanwhile, seems almost neurotically dutiful to Don. If the answer to the question, why does Don call Peggy, is power, I think the same idea motivates Peggy's willingness to help. She still feels she owes Don some debt of gratitude. She doesn't yet realize that her success is her own. As much as the new girl is about introducing new women to the Mad Men formula, it's also about Peggy moving past her unconditional loyalty to Don. But in this scene, she still retains that familiar, unrestrained obedience. Don tries to sneak into his house that morning. He enters quietly and slips his shoes off in the darkness of his kitchen, but Betty lays awake when he walks upstairs. 
Her initial suspicion fades to concern as Don mentions the accident. Don blames this on his high blood pressure, first revealed in For Those Who Think Young. My father has high blood pressure, Betty worries. There's a nice two-shot in this scene, with both Don and Betty facing the same direction, Betty looking at him, concerned, while he looks forward, hiding his guilt. He tells her not to worry and gets ready for work. Alongside its investigation of her character, the new girl gives us a more extensive view of Peggy's Brooklyn apartment. Bobby talks to Jimmy on the phone. I'm at a fat farm, she says. One of your friends made a joke about my ass. The shot widens into the apartment as Peggy enters with groceries. Everything feels very natural here. The lighting and set design give the space a very lived-in look. Peggy wears a light plaid blouse and a gray skirt. It feels like the kind of conservative outfit she would pick to downplay her femininity. Bobby reads a tabloid article and sympathizes with Marilyn Monroe. I'd like to have her problems, Peggy says, introducing the subtlety of class-related disparities to the new girl's investigation of women in the 60s. They talk about President Kennedy's upcoming 45th birthday celebration, a fundraiser for the Democratic Party held at Madison Square Garden. The event attended over 15,000 people and featured Marilyn Monroe's famous performance of Happy Birthday, Mr. President, one of her last public appearances before her death. Along with the earlier mention of A Funny Thing Happened, the conversation places the date of this episode in early May 1962. The next scene introduces Jane Siegel, the new secretary Joan has been searching for since taking over Don's desk. We saw hints of Joan's frustration in our previous episode, Three Sundays, when she grew tired of babysitting Sally. And the new girl is as much about Joan moving on as finding Don's new secretary. Joan's been longing for marriage since Mad Men first introduced her character, and in this episode, she's at last gotten what she's wanted. The new girl almost feels like the beginning of a goodbye for Joan. Peyton List began modeling as a child. She acted in Sex in the City, Law and Order, and As the World Turns, before she was cast on Mad Men. Like showrunner Matthew Weiner, she's from Baltimore. She claims this helped her to feel more comfortable while portraying Mad Men's newest new girl, Jane Siegel. Jane and Joan walk through the office in a tracking shot, reminiscent of Peggy's entrance in the Mad Men pilot. Joan wears a deep blue dress, while Jane appears in a lighter blue that I'm going to henceforth refer to as the new girl color. She's an attractive, recent college graduate who seems anxious to start working. They approach the desk outside Don's office, walking past a partition that's a bit too noticeable for me to overlook. It appears in several scenes and may hint at the division between men and women. Or I may be reading far too much into a simple consequence of set design, but you wouldn't be listening if I didn't question this stuff, right? Joan shows off her wedding ring as Jane sits for the first time in front of Don's office. I feel like I'm walking in tall cotton, she says. The welcome wagon of Sterling Cooper ad guys approaches. Ken Cosgrove, Paul Kinsey, and Harry Crane all introduce themselves, Harry leading with the suspicious, I'm Harry Crane, married. Ken seems especially interested in Jane, who welcomes the attention. Don arrives and hands Jane his hat. He moves to his office, barely noticing her, followed by Ken, who says Jimmy Barrett wants to meet. Don calls Bobby, suspicious of how much Jimmy knows about their affair. Jane and Joan continue to chat, visible through Don's open office door. We return to Peggy's apartment, where she's changed to a pink dress that evokes the candy cane pinafores worn by hospital volunteers, prompting the colloquial name Candy Stripers. Peggy and Bobby bond over their relationship with Don. Bobby insists he's a good man. I never expect him to be anything other than what he is, Peggy responds. She walks away and into the hallway. Light pours into the shot as Peggy opens the bathroom door, and we get a beautiful match dissolve into one of her memories. 
A close-up shows Peggy waking in the psychiatric ward at St. Mary's Hospital in Brooklyn, New York. St. Mary's was built in 1882. It closed in 2005, but has since reopened as a long-term care facility. Peggy is visited in the hospital by her mother and older sister. The doctor states they're keeping Peggy for several weeks to treat her psychoneurotic disorder. Catherine leaves but insists she'll be waiting outside. Dr. Gozman asks Peggy several questions. Do you know what year it is? Do you know where you are? Who is the President of the United States? He reminds Peggy that she had a child. Another closely matched cut transitions from the hospital window to a mirror in the bathroom of Dr. Stone's fertility clinic. This scene wasn't in the episode's original script. It was written on set to transition away from Peggy's flashback, and Matthew Weiner immediately okayed it upon hearing the idea. Pete stands uncomfortably in the middle of the sterile, gray room. He spots himself in the mirror as he thumbs through an eclectic collection of nudie magazines. We return to Sterling Cooper as this third, hilarious match cut shows Roger in his office, playing with a paddle ball. No, this is not highbrow TV. Even Mad Men indulges in a few dick jokes from time to time. You know, you can hear that outside. Nobody knows what I'm doing. It's good for mystique. Roger congratulates Joan with his typical sarcasm, inserting several jokes about the dryness of marriage and asking if he can give her a few pounds for good luck. Despite his jeering, Roger struggles to hide his melancholy reaction to the news of Joan's engagement. I always assumed you were unhappy with Mona, not the idea of marriage, she says. Roger once again reassures her that she was important to him. Bobby and Peggy make small talk over coffee. Bobby reveals more about her past. She was a dancer before she met Jimmy Barrett and started managing his career. Like Don, Bobby's reinvented herself in pursuit of the life she wanted. But Bobby remains suspicious of Peggy. She asks several interrogating questions, each hinting at a sentiment I've already expressed. Why are you doing this? Peggy insists she's not in love with Don, that they work together. She claims Don has helped her career, and she feels she owes him. So... Are you in love with them? No. It's not a ridiculous question. Are you? It's a personal question, and I've already answered you. You're right. Aren't you going to ask me if I'm in love with them? It's none of my business. You're right again. You're so young and beautiful. I'm not your competition. I think Peggy mistakes Bobby's intentions here. It would be out of character for a woman so self-assured to resent Peggy over Don. I don't believe Bobby is jealous of Peggy in this scene. Instead, she remains unsure why Peggy so dutifully helps Don take care of his personal problems. Remember that Bobby is inspired by French feminism. She views herself as Don's equal. And with that in mind, it's difficult for Bobby to empathize with Peggy who continues to subvert herself in her relationship with Don. When Peggy says that Don made her a copywriter, Bobby corrects her, holding up one of Peggy's books. I think you made yourself a copywriter, she says. Several guys hover around Jane's desk, where she leans forward, the top buttons of her white blouse undone. Joan walks over and says she's disappointed. Your décolletage is showing, she says. Jane buttons her blouse as Joan tells her to pick up a sweater during lunch. She smiles as Joan walks away. Ken approaches and tries to impress Jane. He mentions he has an important client visiting Don. Jane seems uninterested. Jane, I have some very important talent 
coming in tomorrow to see Don. Somebody famous. And I just want to make sure you're aware of that. What's your title here? Title? <laughs> I'm Ken. Cosgrove. Accounts. She looks at her calendar and confirms Don's appointment with Jimmy Barrett. Ken seems unfettered by her lack of interest and asks if she'd like to see Jimmy's act. But Freddie bursts from his office to insert some of his notorious musicality. Hey, listen to this. We return to Peggy's apartment, where Bobby covers her bruises with makeup. She seems grateful for Peggy's hospitality and lends some advice before she leaves. You have to start living the life of the person you want to be. Is that what you did? You're never going to get that corner office until you start treating Don as an equal. And no one will tell you this. But you can't be a man. Don't even try. Be a woman. Powerful business when done correctly. This is some of Bobby's most compelling dialogue, and it immediately captures Peggy's attention. I find Peggy's openness to Bobby's advice reveals a lot about her unvoiced feelings. Peggy's never been satisfied to simply fit into her position in the world. In season one, she gravitated to Don, who offered her a way out of being a secretary. But after several months, she seems frustrated with how he manipulates her. Don continues to treat Peggy as a secretary, and Bobby's suggestions seem like a solution Peggy can embrace. We've discussed Peggy's desexualization in previous episodes, and I think the new girl is a necessary reaction that fits into 1962's developing social context of second-wave feminism. Bobby is very obviously associated with feminism, likely influenced by Simone de Beauvoir's 1949 novel, The Second Sex. In Beauvoir's words, The Second Sex strive to explain why a woman's situation prevents her from exploring the world's basic problems. I thought this quote fitting, given the story presented in The New Girl. The day when it will be possible for the woman to love in her strength and not in her weakness, not to escape from herself, but to find herself, not out of resignation, but to affirm herself, Love will become for her, as for man, the source of life, and not a mortal danger. Now, I am certainly not the voice to be discussing feminism, but I will strive to portray some of the second sex's historical significance. The novel sold over 20,000 copies a week upon release. It was quickly placed on the Vatican's list of prohibited books, but its impact spread across the world. The first English edition was published in 1953, translated by a retired professor of zoology. It was picked up by Betty Friedan, an American activist and writer. Friedan's novel, The Feminine Mystique, would kickstart America's own feminist movement, and its publication in February 1963 is just months from the events of The New Girl. As much as this episode is about individual characters like Peggy and Joan, it's also about the rising voices of women in society. The Feminine Mystique sold 3 million copies in its first three years of publication. By the early 1960s, women were ready to embrace a feminist message. Peggy's specific reaction to misogyny has always been to minimize her femininity. Season 1 shows her transition from an object of constant sexualization in Smoke Gets in Your Eyes to One of the Guys by Indian Summer. 
but a version of Peggy that continued to downplay her feminine qualities would fall very flat, giving her very little room to move past the memories of her pregnancy. Embracing that she is a woman is an essential step in Peggy's growth as a character. It helps her learn to accept herself and move past her emotional trauma. Pete arrives home that evening as Trudy sets dinner on the table. Dr. Stone called her earlier that day, she says, and mentioned that Pete's sample was viable. Pete is relieved, still viewing fertility as a representation of his manhood. This is what you wanted, he says. Now Stone can blow up your ovaries or do whatever his cutting-edge plan is. Pete comes across really poorly here, lacking any empathy for Trudy. She storms off, but Pete demands she return. He asks why she wants a child so badly. Pete's enjoying their married life together, and a child will change things. Trudy simply views a child as the next natural step. Without a child, what is this all for, she asks. Pete softens, finally realizing how important motherhood is to Trudy. Fertility is a fitting subject for the new girl, an episode so keenly focused on the question, what does it mean to be a woman? While Bobby and Peggy seem to embrace more modern answers, Trudy's ideas are rooted in tradition. She's content to be a housewife. She longs to be a mother. Mad Men is so skillful in portraying the nuance of its cultural issues. It would be easy to write every character as an avant-garde feminist, or even just broadcast the idea that women's lives are changing. But Mad Men strives for balance. There were, of course, women who did not embrace feminist thinking, whose lives centered around motherhood, and in The New Girl, Trudy is their voice. The brilliance of this example, though, is that it reveals more about Pete and Trudy's marriage. We know that Pete struggles to project his masculinity, often expressing feelings of emasculation, and his portrayal throughout season one is far from sympathetic. But in this scene, we glimpse an essential part of Pete's character. He does have empathy. Unlike Don or Roger, he genuinely enjoys marriage. And when Trudy grows emotional about having a child, Pete seems to hear her. The subject of fertility, of course, carries ironic weight after Peggy's pregnancy. Peggy tidies her apartment that night, alone and pensive. We pan behind her chair and back to St. Mary's Hospital. Peggy wakes in bed, her face lit brightly by the natural light flooding through the window. Don sits at her bedside, his face cast in shadow. Is that really you? Are you really there? She wonders. He is. Don says he worried after Peggy disappeared. He called her mother Catherine, who claimed Peggy was quarantined with tuberculosis. Why are you really here? What do they want you to do? Don asks. Peggy shakes her head, still in denial. She doesn't know. Don insists that she does. Peggy, listen to me. Get out of here and move forward. This never happened. It will shock you how much it never happened. John Hamm, pretty incredibly, only needed two takes to finish this scene. According to actress Elizabeth Moss and director Jen Getzinger, everyone on set was crying when this scene was filmed. Elizabeth Moss claimed it was one of her favorite scenes to shoot in season two. A few things are happening here. Most obvious is Mad Men explaining Peggy's absence mentioned in For Those Who Think Young. The second, perhaps less obvious, is character motivation. From the beginning of season two, Mad Men shows an obvious mentorship between Don and Peggy. But Mad Men has left Don's interest in Peggy largely unmotivated. Sure, he promoted her at the end of the wheel, but their interactions in season one seem far less personal. This hospital flashback gives more meaning to the mentorship exposed in season two. But we can go further. Don and Peggy share something here. 
that idea of rebirth, of moving forward and reinventing yourself. And this also motivates Peggy's affinity to Bobby Barrett. These characters are all connected by a common idea of moving beyond whatever past weighs them down. And while Don helps Peggy to temporarily escape the trauma of her pregnancy, Bobby's advice perhaps helps her finally forgive herself and truly move on. We should note episode sequencing here and how it contributes to this idea. I mentioned redemption throughout our last episode, Three Sundays. But Three Sundays focused on biblical redemption, something that offered Peggy little comfort. Instead, her rebirth comes from people like Don and Bobby, who are relatable and despite lacking traditional morality, have overcome their own troubled pasts. Don, Pete, and Salvatore later meet to discuss the Clarissa account. Remember that this account is heavily linked to Pete's personal life. We know Pete's father-in-law desperately wants a child, and amidst his wife's fertility issues, Pete feels the pressure to deliver impressive work. He bemoans the account's stale creative. Peggy enters, late, dressed in a new girl-colored blouse. She claims she's behind on Clearasil because she was sick. I did my work, Don says sternly. She promises to get the work done by Monday. Peggy lingers around Don's office and apologizes for being unprepared. She asks Don to repay his bail. He reaches into his wallet and hands her $110 in cash. Thank you, Don, she says. He turns his head, caught off guard by her assertiveness. This is a watershed moment in Peggy's relationship with Don. To this point, she's called him Mr. Draper, but from now on, she'll only refer to him as Don. And after this scene, their relationship will grow around mutual respect. The entire set erupted in applause when Peggy's line hit. Through her interactions with Bobby, Peggy has perhaps found her voice. After the last few scenes, I think it's easy to misinterpret Don's actions as typical misogyny. Bobby's influence on Peggy is rooted in second-wave feminism, and Don does mistreat Peggy. But I don't think Don's unfairness has anything to do with Peggy being a woman. You'll recall that Don was one of the first people to respect her. He promoted her to copywriter. He's consistently shown that he believes in her talent. But Don is driven by an almost compulsive self-interest. He often mistreats others simply because he lacks empathy, and this includes both men and women. Seriously, this guy mistreats everyone. Don is too consumed with his own anxiety to reflect on the favor he's asking of Peggy. We should realize by now that Don communicates in this language of confrontation. Don's not afraid to state his needs plainly, and he expects the same resoluteness from others. While Don's morality seems governed by fairness, he isn't proactive in making sure he's treating others fairly. So when Peggy asks him to correct his wrong, she earns a bit more of Don's respect. We've seen this pattern before. Peggy working diligently to the point of frustration, Don never thinking to reward her until she finally stands up for herself. You'll remember this happened in Indian Summer, when Peggy finally asked for her raise. It will become a notable part of Don and Peggy's relationship moving forward. Peggy feeling unrewarded as Don, so caught up in his own ideas, neglects her happiness. But the new girl is a moment of self-assuredness for Peggy, and we're reminded of this when the Barretts arrive at Don's office. Bobby shoots Peggy an approving glance. Jimmy is enthralled with Jane Siegel, and Ken is once again left out, this time at Jimmy's request. They stand in Don's office, the awkwardness palpable, as we're left to wonder how much Jimmy suspects of Don. He thanks Don for helping land the Grin and Barrett pilot. We all got what we wanted, Jimmy says. Don is speechless, his arm still in a sling. Bobby, meanwhile, seems totally recovered. Don eats dinner with his family that evening, Betty's favorite recipe of meatloaf with ketchup. He takes a bite and looks around the table. Come on, Bets. No salt? He pleads. You'll learn to live without it, she reassures. Sally seems curious. 
Why can't Daddy have salt, she asks. Because we love him, Betty replies. The shot drifts away, capturing the entire family sat at the kitchen table. The episode fades to credits. The episode commentaries hint that Mad Men rushed to shoot the new girl within its season 2 timeline. Pete's takes were all shot in one day. All the scenes at Peggy's apartment were also shot in a single day. And several other scenes were done in a single take. But the episode doesn't take a hit in quality. Peggy's flashbacks are compelling. The episode's photography stands out as a highlight. Most of all, though, the character investigation feels natural and impactful and interesting. Because the new girl succeeds where many of season 2's previous episodes fell short, in making season 2's new characters feel compelling and integrated with Mad Men's story, it throws unexpected groups of characters into extended scenes. Bobby Barrett finally feels consequential after her impact on Peggy. Who expected that relationship? Bobby's assertiveness seems to rub off on Peggy, and she voices to Peggy an inescapable truth. Don won't respect you unless you show that you respect yourself. Perhaps more than any episode to date, the new girl strives to profoundly examine Peggy's character. It explains her extended absence from work through flashbacks to her time in the psychiatry ward at St. Mary's Hospital. It expands on her relationship with Don, and it finds a way for Peggy to move forward by accepting herself. She's empowered by Bobby's advice, and by the episode's end, we sense that her timid demeanor has been replaced by something new, something entirely different. Confidence. We've discussed in previous episodes how Peggy offers the perspective of the modern audience. Her role in Mad Men helps ground the story. She often reacts to the story as we would. But Peggy is not some static plot device. She's one of Mad Men's most deeply investigated characters. And the new girl shows one of her defining traits, adaptability. Peggy starts the show as an empty vessel with few defining qualities. But throughout the Mad Men series, she adopts pieces of other characters and expresses them in a way uniquely hers. The new girl reveals several prominent examples. Her forward-thinking focus, borrowed from Don, and her confident self-representation, borrowed from Bobby. Season 2 has hinted at Peggy's struggle with the emotional trauma of having a child, and the new girl revisits Peggy in perhaps the worst of her grief. But while Don's advice, forget this happened and move forward, helps Peggy leave the hospital, we sense the pain still lingers. You may be wondering, why don't the promises of religion offer Peggy comfort? Remember that absolution, for Catholics, necessitates the sacrament of reconciliation, it asks Peggy to confess her sins, her faults, and to ask for forgiveness. Imagine being thrust into this new world of temptations at age 20, seeking so desperately to fit in, being constantly mistreated, and unknowingly carrying a child. Having such strict morality thrust upon us doesn't seem comforting, but Bobby sets Peggy on the path to real redemption, with some practical advice. Accept who you are, and live the life of the person you want to be. Bobby's sentiment is neither as flippant as Don's, forget this happened, nor as harsh as the church's concept of sin. It's rooted in acceptance, perhaps the only way for Peggy to truly move forward. Thank you, Don. It's simple but powerful. The new girl's development of Peggy's confidence is so fitting an episode centered around the idea of women finding their voice. Bobby is, of course, already comfortable with her power. Joan seems to at last cut ties with Roger. Jane uses her sexuality to attract attention, and Trudy finally states herself plainly, I just really want a baby. Even Betty stands up for herself at the episode's end. Don's liver might rival Ernest Hemingway, but at least his sodium is under control. When compared with an episode like Ladies Room, the new girl feels a bit different. It's mid-1962, and feminine voices are growing more confident. But we shouldn't treat women as some monolithic group. 
and this episode portrays a notable contrast in the relationships of Jane and Joan and Peggy and Bobby. While Bobby has to encourage Peggy to embrace her femininity, Joan warns Jane to tone it down. These girls are narratively connected as Don's secretaries, but they approach the world with entirely different aims. Peggy wants to be respected for her talent. Jane seems more superficial. And Bobby and Joan are women with experience, offering competing advice. Beyond its investigation of women, the new girl looks more closely at Don's affair with Bobby. It's clear that Don is simply messing around with her, that his relationship with Bobby is entirely different from the deeper connection he had with Rachel. While Bobby does share Don's idea of personal reinvention and seems to see the good in him, she doesn't share Rachel's deeper love for him. But Don continues to indulge himself in Bobby's temptation, and by the end of the episode, he bears several scars for it. Bobby, meanwhile, emerges from the accident largely unimpacted. It all adds to the ominous feeling that while this affair may be meaningless for Bobby, it will have consequences for Don. We'll, of course, discuss these consequences in our next episode, Maiden Form, as Mad Men re-examines women from the male perspective, taking on strip clubs, lingerie, and everyone's favorite question, is she a Jackie or a Marilyn? everyone just wanted to say thank you for listening and encourage you to subscribe to the podcast if you're watching me on youtube you can like and comment on the video really appreciate all of your feedback and support i'm working on several projects i'll be announcing those soon and i'll see you next episode